Good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Galatians chapter 2, which can be found on page 972 in the black Bibles you'll see nearby. So if you look down under the chairs, there's some Bibles there. You can grab one of those. Page 972, Galatians chapter 2. Uh, and we're continuing our series called Centered. As we study the letter to the Galatians, we're trying to uh, think through critically in our own life, what is it that centers our life? What is it that directs us? What serves as a compass point? Um, And then consider the challenge of Paul. He is saying that the gospel should be that center. The gospel should be the thing that directs us and motivates us and shows us which way to go. Uh, Next week, we will have the opportunity to have a guest speaker. I'm excited about a friend of mine, Jamar Tisby. Uh, is the president of the Reformed African American Network. He came, uh, him and the vice president of the network came and spoke to our leaders a few months ago as we consider what does it look like for us as a community to more seriously consider how we can be more diverse? Like how, how do we do that? How, how can we pray towards that practically? How can we be better at that? Because we believe that's a genuine gospel fruit is diversity. Uh, when the gospel enters into a community, it's going to produce naturally diversity. What can we do to get out of the way so that the gospel can bear that fruit? How can we make it happen better? So these guys talked to us before. They're going to now, uh, or Jamar is going to preach God's word to us next week out of Galatians because that's really uh, what next week's passage is about. So just looking forward and seeing that's what this passage is about. I asked Jamar to come in and share God's word with us next week. So pray for him as he will be traveling uh, this way. He's got a long way to travel Um, But we look forward to that. This week, we're going to be looking at gospel-centered unity. So next week, it's gospel and diversity. This week, it's gospel unity. And there's going to be a lot of overlap. We're going to kind of creep into some of those topics today as well. So let's read together uh, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to uh, think about what does it look like for us to be on the same team? What's the bar? What's the basis of unity? What does it mean to be united in the gospel? Um, And I'm just going to warn you, there's a lot of parenthetical aside kind of statements that Paul has here, so it's going to sound a little rough. If you haven't read this yet, it's going to be a little confusing on the first read, but hopefully we'll we'll pull it apart and make sense of it as we go. So chapter 2, Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, and to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, a little bit confusing, um, but the theme is gospel-centered unity. What does that look like to be united 
uh, united in the gospel. What does it mean to be on the same page because of the gospel? So let's pray and ask God to teach us today. God, we pray that you would lead us, that you would help us to understand uh, what you're saying to us in the text. There's some just some grammatical confusion here, Lord, some different directions. We, we pray that you would guide us, that you would teach us, that you would help us to see what you're doing in the world. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was enjoying watching uh, the World War II miniseries Band of Brothers recently. Any of you seen Band of Brothers? It's a pretty good film, pretty well done. Uh, and I think it's in episode two or three. Uh, they're they're uh, participating in the D-Day invasion where these paratroopers are being dropped behind enemy lines in 1944 uh, in France. And it's a chaotic scene, right? The planes carrying the paratroopers are being shot at. Some planes are getting shot down. Uh, Some of the paratroopers dropping are getting shot out of the sky. And so by the time uh, you're on the ground with the paratroopers seeing where they're going, um, there's a lot of confusion, right? A lot of them have been dropped in the wrong place. Um, and you've got units that are mixed up. Some of them have lost their supplies. And what I noted was there was a guy from one company that just easily assimilated into Easy Company. Easy Company is the main kind of characters or main unit of the story. And so this guy from this other company, he just, he just jumps right in with Easy Company, and they just function together because they're on the same team. The basis of their unity wasn't which company they were in, but the fact that they were American soldiers, right? They were citizens of the same country. They were part of the same family, if you will, and that put them on the same team, even though they had trained separately and they were supposed to be in different target locations, right? Because of all the the battle and everything that went wrong, they they got mixed up and they got dropped in the wrong places and they just had to function together. And and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking this is a great picture of unity, right? Um, They trained separately separately. Uh, They were dropped separately, but they ended up together and they were able to function together because they're on the same team. They have unity uh, in who they belong to, citizens of America. But I thought there's also uh, what would have been interesting is if it had been like, say, a a tanker or maybe a Navy submariner or something that had been dropped in with them. He probably wouldn't have functioned as well with that unit, right? Because there would have been more differences. Now they still would have seen each other as on the same team, right? They still, uh, hopefully, Army, you would st- you'd see Navy guys as on the same team, right? Um, they would still fight together, right? They would still be brothers as Americans fighting together, but it would have been harder for them to get along. It would have been harder for them to speak the same language. They'd been trained for different uh, types of battle. They'd been trained for different exercises, right? You know, you're noticing even just like the in the movie, you're noticing the hand signals are given to each other as they move through terrain, and they, they understand each other. They speak the same language. But if you take an American that wasn't given the same paratrooper training, it would have been harder for them to understand each other. And, and so, to me, that's an expression of both unity and diversity. And that's what Paul is talking about here in the text. We have unity as Christians. We're in the same family because of the gospel because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Even though we may have diversity, we may literally speak a different language. We may be trained in different ways. We may be better at certain ministries. We may have different skills, and that might make it harder for us to get along, right? We might have grown up in a different place, and it might make it harder for us to understand each other. We might like different kinds of music or prefer different styles of of whatever, eat different foods. If you've traveled to different countries, you know that 
Christians in different countries don't do everything the same way that we do in this country. And so what Paul is, is talking about is this tension between unity and diversity. And it's a good, healthy tension. And the first thing he wants us to understand is, is what the basis of the unity is. Because we can't get to the diversity until we agree on what the basis of the unity is. Does that make sense? So we want healthy diversity. That's a good thing, a healthy thing. But we have to understand why we're unified in the first place. And so the first thing that Paul hits on is what the, the basis of this unity is in verses 1 and 2. And I just want to remind you uh, of the definition of the gospel that, that Paul's already kind of given us. He's going he's gonna to work this out more as we go through Galatians. But so far in, in verses 3, 4, and 5, he's already laid out some, some words about what this gospel is. He says in 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 1, so I'm just going to kind of jump back to chapter 1 for a second, and then we'll go back to chapter 2. In 1, he says, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we get grace and peace from God the Father through Jesus. And then verse 4 he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So it glorifies God and it pleases God to give Jesus for our sins. So Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins. It said uh, already in verse 1, he rose from the dead. So we got this summary of this simple story that most of us have heard before that Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the grave uh, promising that we also can rise, that we also can conquer death. And so there's this little summary of the gospel. So that's the basics of the gospel, the person of Jesus, by the will and pleasure of the Father for us, for our health, for our life, to deliver us from this present evil age. So that's the gospel. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul says it's the, it's the basis. It's what makes us unified. Verse 1 then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul says here, he's privately conferring. He's having like this little secret conference with these leaders. Um, he says specifically to those who seemed influential, and he says he's telling them his gospel basically to make sure they're on the same page. Now, the question we have to ask here is what does he mean in verse 2 where he says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain? What does he mean there? We have to ask that question, and depending on your background or your agenda or your theology, you're going to interpret that verse differently. Um, I, I believe it cannot mean that he was making sure that his gospel was correct. And I believe that because of the context of what Paul has already said. I believe Paul already was convinced that his gospel was correct, and he was going to make sure their gospel was correct and that they were on the same team. Now, first cursory reading, if you just read this verse out of context, understandably, you would think he was checking to make sure his gospel is right. I'll read the verse again, verse 2. He says, I went to those who seemed influential, uh, to proclaim the gospel that I had uh, proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. It's kind of like, sounds like Paul's saying, I'm going in to make sure I wasn't off course, running my race the wrong way. Uh, I went in to check with the authorities to make sure everything was cool. And if you come from a high authoritarian church background, that's probably how you would read it. I have a very good friend that comes from a background that wants to make much of the historic uh, authority of the church. And so when he reads this verse, that's immediately what he says. He says, ha, see, proof of my movement, 
we all have to go check our gospel with the relevant authorities. And I'd say that the problem is that's, that doesn't seem to be the direction of the entire book. I mean, the entire book, the context, Paul has been saying, I didn't check with the authorities. I didn't get it from the authorities. I didn't get this from Peter. I didn't get it from James. I didn't get it from man. I got it from Jesus. Again and again and again, the context, Paul is saying, I didn't get it from them. So it can't mean now, all of a sudden, now he's checking to make sure it's okay. All along, he said, this gospel exists independently from these uh, authorities in Jerusalem. This gospel is Jesus, the message of Jesus. And these other apostles can be right or they can be wrong, but the story is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. It's the basis of our unity. I want to just give you some context to to kind of prove the point. Uh, Going back to verse 1, Paul introduces the letter. We made much of this a few weeks ago. He introduces the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he adds in this extra little phrase that he doesn't add to any other letter he's written to say, by the way, I'm an apostle, not because of any man. No one commissioned me. No bishop uh, you know, shook something over me or gave me a special hat, but Jesus gave me the gospel and sent me out. So Paul's trying to be very clear. It didn't come from man. It came from Jesus. He says then in verse uh, 8, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. So we talked about this idea that he's saying it doesn't matter who is saying it. It doesn't matter if it's your favorite preacher. It doesn't even matter if it's an angel from heaven. If they're preaching a different gospel, they've gone off the rails. So again and again, Paul's saying the gospel is what matters, not the spokesperson, not the authority of the figure uh, proclaiming it. And then in verse 10, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So again, he's saying, I'm not submitting to men. I'm submitting to God. In verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, he just keeps hammering away. I didn't get this from Peter. I didn't get this from James. I didn't get this from the guys in Jerusalem. I didn't get this from any particular man. I didn't get this from a seminary. I got this from Jesus. This is Jesus' gospel. Uh, in verse 16, he says, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Verse 17, he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away for a while. So he's saying, when I first received this gospel, I didn't go check with them right up front either. And then he goes on and he says in verse 18, uh, After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. So finally, after three years, he goes and he meets with Peter. And he says, I was only with him for about 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Then in 22, he says, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So there was this radical turn in Paul's life. He was trying to destroy this gospel. He was trying to push back against Jesus Jesus appears to him, convinces him that Jesus is our Savior, and he begins proclaiming this gospel. But he didn't get it from Peter, he didn't get it from James, he didn't get it from the higher authorities. Therefore, he can't now be saying, all of a sudden, I thought I had the wrong gospel. Like That just doesn't make sense with everything else he's written. He's built this entire case saying, I had the right gospel. So now when we, he says, I wanted to make sure I wasn't running my race in vain, really what he's saying is, I want to make sure they were right, and they weren't messing with the heads of all these guys that I've preached the gospel to, right? If you're a pastor, you care for your sheep, you're going to want to go check on this other church that your people have moved to to make sure it's a healthy place. When, when people move from this church, 
uh, I, I like to help them find a healthy church where the gospel is being preached because I care for their soul. I don't want the race we've run here to be in vain because they get hijacked and, and get sucked into something that's crazy somewhere else. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So he, he can't be looking for their stamp of approval. I had a little stamp here, a rubber stamp, approved. Um, that's the first reading. When we just read it without context, we think, oh, Paul's going to make sure his gospel's approved. Chink. But it can't be that because he's built an entire case, all of chapter one saying this gospel stands on its own. This gospel stands on its own. This gospel is what saves. And if you add to it or take away from it, you've changed it and it's not uh, working anymore. It's Jesus, his death and resurrection for us. What he summarized in verses two through five at the beginning of the chapter, he said that gospel, I got it from Jesus. It's the truth. And then I wanted to make sure that Peter and James were on the right page as well. So the basis of our unity is the gospel. It's the message. The basis of our unity can't be the authority figure. The basis of our unity can't be the structure. It's the gospel itself. Now we want to be careful because in the scripture it says we should honor structure. We should honor authority. We should honor leaders. It's very clear in Hebrews 13. It says um, obey your leaders, right? Follow them. Make it, don't make it harder on them than it has to be already. We should have a general posture of trusting, listening to, honoring healthy leaders. But the leader is not the basis of our unity. The gospel is. And so application point for you is you need to know the gospel well. You need to be able to check what I or some other authority figure says, and you need to be able to make sure that what we're telling you is gospel. You need to know it for yourself. You need to read these words. You need to meditate on them. You need to comfort your own heart with this unity that you have in the family of God, this acceptance that you have as a child of God, not because of what you've done, not because of the authority figures and what they're telling you, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. And the deeper you find comfort and relief in that gospel, the more you run to it for your security, for your safety, for your health, for your life, the more clear you're going to be on it so that when somebody jumps up here, I hope that day never happens, but someone jumps up in this pulpit and says something that's contrary to that gospel, you can smell it, right? You can, you can hear it, you can recognize it, and you're like, that's not, that's not right. That's another gospel. And the only way we're going to have a healthy community is if you're actually checking what we're saying, right? You're actually like evaluating us like we hear in Acts, the Bereans were testing what Paul said to see if it lined up with the scriptures. We want you to test us and check us and make sure what we're preaching is right because the gospel is our authority. My position is not my authority. My pulpit's not my authority. My diploma is not my authority. The gospel is the authority that we speak with. And that's the authority that anyone else that speaks here has as well. So, so know the gospel. Know it. Meditate on these truths of who Jesus is. Memorize 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, study the book of Romans. Read the book of Galatians. Go deeper in it. You know, we've got these handouts we're giving you to, to go deeper in what we're talking about uh, as we preach through Galatians. Talk about it with others. Pray through it. Meditate on the scriptures so that you know the basis of your unity, why you're in the family of God. The next thing that we see is the proof of unity. So what's the proof of this unity? How is this unity then displayed? And uh, Paul has a test case then of Titus. Titus becomes a test case because Titus is an outsider culturally. So he's a test case of testing the Jerusalem apostles to make sure that the gospel is enough because Titus doesn't fit the Jerusalem culture. He's from a different culture. So here in verse 3 he says, 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So he wasn't forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So sorry, we're going to have to have a little uh, biology lesson here, circumcision, to, sh- to define it quickly, and hopefully we won't have to talk about it too much, although it's going to come up a few more times in Galatians. Circumcision is basically the cutting away of excess skin from the male reproductive organ. Okay, Sorry I had to say that out loud. So it, it, it is a symbol of cleanliness, right? Now, medical people argue over whether it's actually a uh, hygiene issue, right? I would say there's a good case to be made that it actually does help people resist in, infection and there is some cleanliness issues that are helpful. When we look back into the Old Testament uh, purity laws, we see a lot of laws that today, through modern science, we can say, wow, that actually benefited the culture. But we don't have to be able to do that to, to trust that God had a good reason for it, right? There's a lot of things that God did in the Old Testament. He just did just for symbolism, and that's okay. We don't always know the difference. They're all mixed up, right? There were, there were health laws that God incorporated in the Old Testament, and a lot of them seemed to genuinely help the health of his people, and some of them were just purely symbolic. So here he gave Abraham, the father of Israel, a sign and so they marked the reproductive organ saying, someday Abraham, by a miracle, through my supernatural work, through my promise, God was telling him, you're going to have a son, you will reproduce in a way that saves the world. Your children will bless all the nations. That was the promise made to Abraham. And so the sign that went along with it was a sign that coincided symbolically with reproduction. It was a sign that said, someday you're going to reproduce in a way that's going to bring that son of of Eve that we've all been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. And Abraham, it's going to come through your line. You're going to reproduce, and there's going to be a seed. There's going to be an offspring that's going to come that's going to bless the whole world. So Paul's going to say later in the book of Galatians, that seed is Jesus. He's that son we've all been waiting for. So so now that symbol is no longer needed because that symbol was pointing forward, helping us see what was to come. And now Jesus is here, and so we don't need this sign anymore. And that's uh, the argument of Paul here. And so what we have is we have a, a difference between the cultural forms of the Old Testament and the purpose. The, the way Hebrews, the book of Hebrews describes it here is there were these shadows and then Jesus is the thing that was foreshadowed, right? Jesus is the substance. So I, I've liked to talk about it in the past as flannel graph. You know, if you've ever been in Sunday school, there's a flannel graph. You have this flannel board and you put the little pictures, you know, the little cartoons on there and you can stick them on there. So these are like crude illustrations that tell the story. And that's what we have in the sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament laws, we have pictures and stories and symbols that are pointing us forward to Jesus. And now that Jesus is here, we don't, we don't really need the flannel graph anymore because we have Jesus. And that's Paul's point, that there are um, core issues of salvation through God alone Only God can make that ultimate sacrifice to save us. We're sinners. We need a Savior, right? That's the core we share with the Old Testament. And then there's all these uh, cultural things that were symbols to show the people of God and communicate to the world about this Jesus that was to come. And we have to be able to separate out those two things. And so this was proof of unity that Titus didn't have to be circumcised because what happened was Titus comes in He's not circumcised. I don't know how they checked. I don't know all those details. But he comes in and and they don't make him get circumcised. They say, you can be saved through Jesus alone. You don't have to become a Jew also. 
And so what, what's happening here is they're not forcing him to become culturally a Jew. They're saying it's enough by faith to be a part of Jesus and what he's done for us, to just trust in the work of Jesus. Jesus' work is enough. We're not going to make you join our tribe also. Our tribe is in Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, it's pretty clear that there are really only two tribes in the world that matter. There's the tribe of sin and there's the tribe of salvation. Romans 5 says there's, we're all either in Adam or we're in Christ. You have two tribal chiefs, if, it, if you were. And, and so you can either uh, give yourself to the tribal chief Jesus or you can remain in Adam and we can just kind of recapitulate what Adam did. We can go our own way, be our own gods. Or we can trust in Jesus to save us. Those are our only two tribal options. And so we don't want to mix up our smaller circle tribes, our, our little tribes, our neighborhoods, our race, our clubs, where we hang out and say that's gospel, right? We want to be able to separate those things out and say the gospel stands on its own apart from our tribe. Paul says that if they had made um, Titus get circumcised, they would have been making us slaves to the Jewish culture. And Christianity is, is clearly supposed to be transcultural. There's an African scholar, Laman Sane, who, one of my favorite quotes, he says, the original language of Christianity is translation. The original language of Christianity is translation. It's made to be multicultural. That's the, one of the most beautiful things about Christianity. It's made to break out into every culture, every tongue, every tribe. It's supposed to look like different things in different places, but have the same Savior the same morality, the same righteousness, but have different expressions and, and come out in different ways. And so Paul says here in verse 4, yet because, and this is one of those crazy asides, like you can tell Paul's agitated, right? We talked about that before. Paul's all like worked up about this. And so he has this aside. He says uh, in verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery He's like starting to say something and then he just stops with that sentence. He doesn't even say it and he goes on to another sentence. He's like, these guys were trying to come in and they were trying to make us slaves and they were trying to spy on us and they were trying to sneak in and they were trying to change the gospel so that we had to be culturally submitted to Judaism instead of just submitted to Judaism's Messiah, King Jesus. And he goes on in verse five, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you hear that. The truth of the gospel is preserved because they didn't submit to these guys. So the other side of this is if you go to a, say, a church and the the church says that you have to have a particular haircut to be saved. Just throw that out, right? You have to have this haircut to be saved. We all have this haircut and the righteous all have this haircut and you have to have this haircut to be saved. Paul says if you give in to them, you're sacrificing the truth of the gospel because the truth of the gospel is is that we're all sinners and only Jesus' death and resurrection can take care of our sin problem. No haircut can fix it, right? And so when you give in to this cultural standard as a mark of belonging to the tribe, of being unified, then you're giving up the gospel truth. So the proof of the unity, Paul says, is they didn't make Titus get circumcised. The Jewish apostles said, it's okay for this Greek to still be a Greek as long as he trusts in Jesus, that's enough. Paul says, there you go, there's the proof. They didn't make him become a part of their tribe. They said it's enough to be in Jesus, to trust in him, to be a part of what Jesus was doing for them. They didn't have to take on all these cultural boundary markers. Think of, think of the culturally, cultural boundary markers that, 
that we use. You know, you go into different churches, people do things in different ways. You go into different neighborhoods, people do things in different ways. Um, I was thinking about kind of my cultural heritage. I've got some uh, Celtic background, and so, you know, it'd be a lot of fun if I made everybody at our church paint their face blue, right? Because, I mean, I think it's kind of cool and intimidating to have a mullet and blue, blue paint on your face. But that would be a compromise of the gospel, right? If I tried to get our community to all look like this and say, if you really want to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world, you have to follow uh, my tribe. You have to be a part of my tradition. You have to do things my way, right? It was funny, as I was looking through this, I found a family that's actually trying to carry this on. Here's some little kids. <laughs> some little blue Celtic warriors. Very intimidating. I don't, I don't recommend that. That's kind of kind of scary. Your children are going to be confused if you do that. Um, but we have, different, we have different markers that we lay on people and we say, this is what it's got to look like, right? But what I would say is it's, it's got to look like submission to Jesus. What unifies us all, no matter what neighborhood we grow up in, no matter what color our skin is, no matter what language we speak, what unifies us is universally, we all, like Adam and Eve, we've all sinned. We've all tried to go our own way. We've all tried to do our own thing. We've all tried to be our own gods. And that hasn't led to more justice. That hasn't led to more love. That hasn't led to more kindness. That's led to this world being completely screwed up. We're all a part of that. So we all universally, uh, we all universally share in what we call sin, right? This falling away from what God has asked us to do. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the solution he offers is Jesus. The solution he offers is Jesus. And so it, by trusting in what Jesus has accomplished for me, I can have salvation. I can be a part of his family. And then I'm free to speak English. But I'm not free to demand that everybody else in the world that wants to be a Christian speaks English. That's just my language. I grew up speaking English. It, it's just easier for me to speak English, right? But when I go to another country, when, I go to, when we go to Guatemala, uh, we attempt to speak Spanish or we find a translator, Right? And we don't say, you know what, we're really the height of Christianity in America, so you Christians in Guatemala, you really need to learn English. It'd really be, right? Like, that would be weird. Wouldn't that be weird? I hope you think that would be weird. Um, And so what happens is you can be freed up. You can be freed up to evaluate your own culture and recognize preferences and choices and recognize that they're not gospel issues. Right? I recognize that I just speak English because I speak English. But that doesn't make me a Christian. It's completely incidental. It's just a part of my tribe. You know, I'm a white 21st century American suburban Texan, whatever. You know, like, th- there's, there's some just tribal boundary markers of how I was raised, how I was educated, how I communicate. And those things are incidental. And I'm, I'm not allowed to lay those on you and say, this is what Christianity has to look like. Paul's very clear that Christianity is faith in Jesus, and then that faith expressed through righteous living. He'll say later in Galatians 5, through love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. So, so there is a core of what it's supposed to look like, but those aren't really tribal things, right? Those aren't really uh, haircuts and, and language. Those are character issues based on our faith in Christ, in Christ, based on belonging to him. So here at Grace Bible Church, we, we have kind of a weird view of membership based on this philosophy. If, if you've been here long, um, this might be kind of a surprise to you. Um, at Grace Bible Church, we would say everyone's a member of the universal body of Christ by faith in Christ. And so then if you come here on Sundays and you're a member of the universal body of Christ, you're a member of Grace Bible Church. 
Yeah, surprise. So, um, and so what that means is you're a member of Christ and you're a member of this body. You might just be immature, right? You might just show up and you have faith in Christ, uh, but you don't give, you don't serve, you're not friends with anybody, you're not partnering with us in ministry. So, so we would say you can be a member here and just, pardon me for saying it this way, kind of be a not very good member, right? You know, or, or maybe an easier way to say it would be you can be an immature member, like, like a baby, right? Like you're in the family. When my child is born, um, my son was born, he was the biggest of all our children. And so there would have been this temptation to be like, all right, boy, you're a man, go mow the lawn, right? But he, he couldn't do it. He wasn't there yet, but he was still a member of the family, right? So we, we see membership that way. If you read our constitution, membership is by faith in Jesus. And then we want to call you to grow up. We want we want you to serve, but that's not, your membership's not based on serving here. We want you to give, but your membership's not based on giving. Uh, we want you to be involved in ministry, but your membership's not based on how many ministries you're involved in or, or what you're doing. We want you to study the Bible. We want you to grow an understanding of the word, but your membership's not based on that. Your membership is based on what Jesus has accomplished for you, and that's important to understand, important to keep clear. The next thing that we want to look at is the expressions of unity. And so again, uh, a lot of aside statements here, but I, I just kind of want to summarize it. Based on gospel unity, based on being in the same family through Jesus, um, we can have diversity. There can be healthy diversity. And there's kind of two kinds that he describes here. One kind of diversity is different ministry targets, right? Um, so we can be unified with, say, a sister church and say, we're both preaching the same gospel. We both love Jesus. We like to go to Guatemala, and our sister church likes to go to the Ukraine. Um, and that's okay, right? We're taking the gospel to different places. And so he talks about that here. He says, uh, I was uh, called to take the gospel to the Greeks, and these guys were called to take the gospel to the Jews. So that's diversity that's an expression of unity in the gospel. And then the other thing he ends with in verse 10 is caring for the poor. So no matter which tribe we have, right, say, so we're in this neighborhood and, and we care about these kinds of people and we're, we're focused mainly on clean people, right? There's this temptation to care for those who really can contribute, those who are really strong. And there's always this reminder, Paul says, I was eager to do this as well, to care for the outcast, to care for the foreigner, no matter where you are. So no matter what your tribe is, always care for those on the fringe, to always care for those that are struggling. And so Paul says, I was eager to do that too. That's what they they reminded me to do. We always want to be those kinds of people that no matter what our culture is, we're caring for those that are on the fringe, that are on the outside. So let me read the text again, verses 6 through 10. He says in verse 6, And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. So here, basis for unity is, is recognizing God doesn't show any partiality. Their importance or their stature, Paul says, just wasn't that big a deal to me. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Greeks, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So phrases he's going to use interchangeably here are circumcised or Jews, right? He's going to talk about the Jewish tribe. And then he's going to say uncircumcised or Greeks, or Gentiles, which means the nations. So these are just kind of catchphrases. Greek doesn't only mean people that spoke Greek. That was just the predominant language of that day. So it was kind of a catchphrase for saying the non-Jews, right? 
So he's basically talking about Jewish tribe and every other tribe. And he's saying they recognized that God had given grace to me and I was taking that same gospel that unified us to these tribes and they were taking this gospel to their tribe. So diverse uh, direction, but same gospel. And he says in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9, And when James and Cephas, Peter's other name, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they slapped hands, whatever they did in that day, shook hands. They're like, all right, we're on the same team and we're going in different directions, right? We're, We're the same, you know, we're all Americans, but we have a different MOS, right? We have different training. We have a different place we're going to go, but we're on the same team. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So again, he gives two different expressions of what this diversity looks like. It looks like going to different tribes, and it also looks like no matter which tribe you go to, always caring for outsiders, even in that tribe, always caring for the poor, always caring for the marginalized. In Scripture, it's often talked about the orphan and the widow, right? James talks about that. That's what true religion is, caring for the orphan and the widow. Talks a lot in the Old Testament law about caring for the foreigner, caring for those that are outsiders that don't fit in. We have to always do that, and that's an expression of gospel unity. No matter which tribe we're focused on, that we're still always caring for the outsiders. We're always caring for those that are hurting, for those that are struggling, for those that are poor, for those that are weak. I have a picture here of an illustration of this ecosystem. So from like seventh grade life science, I don't know if y'all studied this, ecosystems, ecosystems, I don't know how you say that. Um, the, the idea is like if I were to take all the muskrats out of this ecosystem, it would upset the balance of the pond. Have y'all ever heard this kind of thing before, right? Um, that there's this kind of biological bent towards diversity that's healthy, right? It makes things healthier. You see this in uh, dog breeding as well. You know, like if you have a really specialized dog breed, they have particular weaknesses because there's been a lack of diversity in their breeding. They've always been bred with the same uh, types of animals to kind of keep those particular things because they don't want those particular things to go away. And as they do that, they have other weaknesses, particular weaknesses that creep in to that breed as well. There's been a lot of uh, news about wolves and introducing wolves into Yosemite. Have any of y'all read about this? Um, in the 20s, they just killed all the wolves out of Yosemite National Park. And in the 90s, they decided to reintroduce wolves back into the park because they said the elk were overgrazing. So when they took the wolves out, there's nothing to eat the elk. And so then there were too many elk and then not enough vegetation because they're eating all the vegetation. So they, they brought wolves back in. Now, I'm not Don't misunderstand. This is just an illustration. I'm not campaigning for wolves, okay? Um, But it's an illustration that we see in a lot of different areas of life that diversity is good. Diversity is healthy because diversity, that tension of the diversity in the church especially helps us to remember what the basis of our unity is, right? And as I said before, the, the purpose of the gospel is to go to every tongue and tribe and nation. That's the purpose. So God wants us to be diverse, and again, Paul expresses it in a couple different ways. I'd like to think through what that could look like for us. What would it look like for us to be a more diverse congregation? Think about just at an individual level, your own friends. Are you only friends with people that are just like you? That would be a question for you. I believe the gospel would encourage us to be like Jesus and leave the comfort of heaven and move in to a, a hard neighborhood like earth for the purpose of others. And so do you ever cross boundaries 
uh, into the realm of other people that maybe don't live the same way you do, don't think the same way you do? Or do you only hang out with people that are educated like you and speak like you and think like you and have the same uh, personality temperament that you have? You're not going to be challenged to grow in your faith if you're only around people like you all the time. It's a good exercise to get to know others that are different. Also think about with your own kids. Uh, are you allowing your kids to pursue their individual callings? Are you, are you getting to know your kids and what they're like and their unique personalities and coming alongside and trying to fan into flame the gifts that God has given them? Uh, maybe, maybe you don't have kids, but you've been a kid and you know the pain of a parent trying to like uh, make you something you were not. Um, my kids, uh, our three kids are all gifted in different ways, um, but I think it's important to remember that whatever... Like, Dad, whatever your job is, your, your kid's job somewhat is to come, come alongside under that mission, right? Um, you have a mission, and like, if you're in the military, I'm a preacher. Like, our family has moved to certain places and done certain things to support the mission that God has called me to. And I think that's pretty normal in a family. But you wouldn't take that to the level of, and when you grow up, you have to do exactly what I do, right? Like, we wouldn't take it that far. We would say, I want you to grow and understand your unique callings. So what that looks like in my family is my wife's a teacher. She's got a lot of background in drama. I'm a preacher. My, my kids are probably going to be better than average public speakers, right? Probably just, just by accident, you know, because that's, that's just part of who we are as a family. But we're not going to force them to say, you all have to be public speakers. You know, we're not going to say that's something you have to pursue. We're trying to understand how has God wired them and what has God given them and what are their passions and encourage that to, to come to fruition in their life. So in our own families, we see that as well. There's, there's just a normalcy of, of tribe and culture and like what your family is about. You're going to kind of be about that, but there's also a freedom to divert from that somewhat as well. Um, the other thing I want us to think about is uh, different ministries in our church. I would, I would love our church to continue to develop new ministries to, to different kinds of people. Like if you have a, an idea for some kind of ministry, talk to us about it. Help, help us build that. Now, I, I just want to warn you, like if you come to me with, hey, my other church did this ministry and it's great and I think you should do it, Dave. Well, I'm just going to be like, well, my, my plate's full, sorry. But, but if you come to me with, hey, I want to do this ministry, I'm going to be excited and I'm going to want to try to help you out with that, okay? Now, so we want to encourage you to develop diverse ministries here in our community, that we could reach different kinds of people and do different kinds of things. We feel like that's a call of, of a healthy ministry of what God's described here in Galatians 2. One of the ways we think about that too is head, heart, and hands, right? So we don't want to just be head people. We don't want to just be an intellectual ministry. Um, we don't want to just be heart people, right? We don't want to just be all about touchy-feely stuff. We don't want to just be hands people, right? Like doers that never really think. Uh, we want to see all those things intersect in ministry at Grace Bible Church. So we want to encourage those different things. And you see this sort of thing expressed when Paul talks about the different members in the body of Christ, right? In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, you all have different gifts. Some of you are, are brilliant. Um, some of you, not so much, right? Uh, some of you are, are really compassionate. You know, you're, you're warm and you just care for people. Um, some of you are just great at getting things done, uh, building things. And so as we work together, we can contribute our different gifts for this common goal, different expressions of this unity we have in the gospel, honoring Jesus, the head of the body. So we're all different parts. We all have different gifts. We all have different skills. We have different interests, but we honor Jesus, our King. 
Well, as we conclude, I want us to um, think about uniquely what this could look like uh, next week. I talked about we're bringing in Jamar Tisby, who's the president of the Reformed African American Network. One of the things that's a blessing at our church is that we are somewhat racially integrated or somewhat racially diverse as a church. That's a blessing. We believe that's a genuine fruit of the gospel. That's the way it should be. As the gospel comes in, it's going to um, help us to love people of other backgrounds, right? But I would say we're not as diverse as we could be, right? Uh, Colleen's a very diverse town. We're, as a church, we're not as diverse as Colleen is. So a prayer of ours, a prayer of our leadership is that we would uh, understand better what that looks like to become more diverse. That's just a prayer of ours. We, we don't really know how to do that, right? We, we just believe what the scriptures say, that we want to honor the gospel and make that the basis of unity and, and try to reduce as much as possible making other cultural barriers requirements for t- participation in the gospel and participation in what Jesus is doing in this community. So I, I would ask you to pray with us. I'd ask you to pray with us that we would become a more diverse community because we believe that as we become a more diverse community, that's actually going to display unity in the gospel because our unity is in who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished. It's not in our tribe. It's not in our neighborhood. It's not in the way we were raised, but it's in Jesus because he's our hope. My background is not my hope. My, my tribal preferences are not my hope, but Jesus is my hope, and that's what unifies us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us, and we thank you that you gave us Jesus. I thank you that we have the privilege of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to show us what that looks like and help us to have a healthy diversity based on gospel unity. We pray that you'd continue remaking us in the image of your Son, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.